0: Welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 239. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with Rain Hendricks. Thanks, John. And I'm here with my friend and a
1: very special co-host, Mandy Moore.
2: Thanks, Rain. Hi, everyone. Today, we are here with Eli Holderness. Eli has been in tech for five years since graduating in 2016 and has become disabled with CFS a few months into their career, which has really affected how they view the industry and what jobs they've been able to take. They're also genderqueer, bi, ADHD, and Jewish, and they're excited to talk about finally having a job where they can bring their whole selves to work they're quite an extrovert and have been blessed with strong queer support networks since university and are keen to break down the barriers into tech that shut out other marginalized folk who aren't so lucky as
3: Eli has been. Welcome to the show, Eli. Hi. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here and uh, really honored to be here for Mandy's first first in on the panel. I don't really have a thesis statement for sort of what I want to talk about today other than I guess general topics around accessibility in tech and I guess an interesting aspect of that is things that have changed over the last year with the recent horribleness.
2: That sounds great but first we have to ask you the of question course. we always ask everyone and that is what is your superpower and how did you acquire it?
3: So my superpower is if you give me a seed, a plant seed, can probably germinate it. And this is—it's a double-edged sword. Recently, I, I saw my parents. I was lucky enough to see my parents earlier in the year, and uh, my mom was making a tart out of Seville oranges, and she said, oh, "I've got all these Seville orange seeds. Do you want them?" And long story short, now I have a whole crop of orange seedlings on my windowsill because I just cannot stop myself. I'm not really sure how I acquired it. I think I might have—I might have inherited it from my grandmother, who um, grows tomatoes and is a really keen gardener. But my bedroom is slowly being taken over by plants. It's kind of a problem.
2: I know the feeling ever since the pandemic, I ended up buying two plants and now I think I have 15 plants. Yeah, they just keep multiplying, but I'm enjoying having them around. So that's a great superpower to have because I am either a hit or miss when it comes to either plants thriving or plants dying.
3: I've had really bad luck with succulents, actually, um, which is supposed to be they're the typical, you know, you couldn't kill it if you tried. But apparently, maybe I've just got like reverse superpowers when it comes to plants, like it's opposite day every day with me. But no, some of my orange trees are doing quite well. So maybe you'll manage to keep them alive. That'd be nice. Yeah. So um, one of the things I wanted to I wanted to talk about is sort of just experiences of accessibility and tech. So I work four day weeks and I have done for a couple of years now. That's about what I can handle um with my CFS, which is chronic fatigue syndrome, and basically means my body just sucks. My body is an extended practical joke that God is playing on me. And how various things I hope will change after the pandemic, or like we will hopefully see some of the changes in our working patterns maybe persist in ways like ways that they've been helpful to people for accessibility. Like being able to work from home obviously is a huge one. But I think there's also been maybe a change in attitudes to like meetings and like how we schedule our time and like deliberately blocking off time just to work in your calendar so that you're not interruptible and various like how those things actually can be super necessary for some people even though we're only now coming around to them as norms in the industry. Yeah, I don't know if you folks have experiences of how your work has changed and sort of if that's made your work easier or more difficult.
0: Uh, my work actually didn't change much uh, as far as the pandemic. My team's been remote for the last decade, so uh, oh, wow. it, it didn't change things for that. Although the the rest of the company outside of technology start, you know, all went remote. So it's it's been like we've been using that opportunity to sort of try and help the rest of the company get up to speed on things you can do for, you know, to, to keep the team together while they're working remotely because we've been building that expertise for a while. So. That was nice to be able to sort of help other people get up to speed on what that was when it all happened on such short notice for everyone. Um, And I think I've heard so many people talk, much like you, about hoping that the remote work situation continues afterwards because, you know, we've all just had this huge example of, like, work can get done just fine without an office. So why are you insisting on an office? Uh, Yeah, I think a lot of people are really hoping that sticks.
2: Yeah, for me, I feel the same. I've always worked from home. It's funny, my, my daughter's going to be 12. So I always base the number of years I've worked from home on her age because it was literally when she was born. So it's been 12 years that I've done this. But I will say that over the pandemic, a lot of other people are now coming around to knowing that like working from home, while it is a privilege, it's not exactly easy and I've had to put a lot of boundaries in place with my clients and take a lot more self-care because I feel like the pandemic has been a very unique situation. For me, at least, it's not the same as it used to be working from home. Working from home, I had more schedule and regimen and stuff. But now, as I said, my daughter, she's doing remote schooling this year. So there's that. I also, for my mental health, need to work out every day. And I just do that when I feel like right now is a good time where I should take a break. I need to get up and do that um, kind of thing. Like, back before, I used to be like, okay, 3 o'clock is the time where I go and work out. Now it's like whenever I need a minute or I'm feeling overwhelmed or I need like a, a breathe break, I go and do it. So I've, I've kind of had to put more boundaries in place And a lot of people are now a lot better about that. Like I'm not getting excessive pings on my phone or text messages. Where are you? Where are you? Like I stress like to my clients, like asynchronous, like I'll be back. I promise. I promise you I will be back. But please don't call me saying, where are you? Where are you? Because I need some time away from the screen. I find myself much more productive When I sit down and do an hour or two and then go do something like the dishes or the laundry and then come back for an hour or two and then go prepare dinner or do a doctor's appointment and then come back for an hour or two and break up my day in that way. So I think that the pandemic has allowed us to be a lot more accessible in that way. And a lot of companies are being much more like you don't have to have butts in chairs from nine to five or eight to four, or whatever hours those are.
3: It's interesting for me because one of the things that I lost when we went to work from home, because I've always been in an office until this past year, but I, with my ADHD, really benefit from externally imposed structure. I actually gave a talk at a conference back in March, Python Web Conference, about working from home with ADHD. And having to be work from home and not have the structure of an office has really made me confront a lot of the ways that I was kind of coasting based on that external structure and not really addressing like maladaptive behaviors I had. So, you know, when we started working with home, I found myself just really procrastinating until I was able to put in place things like, okay, don't contact me at this time because I'm going to be head down on a piece of code. And if I get distracted by something, somebody coming in with a support ticket that needs to be loved, I will be thrown off kilter for the entire rest of the day and broke my flow. like if I break my hyperfocus. And so that was something where actually my chronic fatigue was sort of less of a factor in my ability to work over this past year that my ADHD had been, which is sort of it had kind of flown under the radar for almost my entire life. But one of the things that's been really nice as well is that the place that I'm at now at the moment, I can just say, "Oh, I, my my brain is full of bees today. I'm not going to be very productive." And so, a huge part of being able to um, work as well as I do at the moment is having people who are willing to work with me in the ways that I need which is really nice. And letting me have a four-day week, which is surprisingly uncommon. I have been turned down from a lot of job interviews and whatnot for needing a four-day week. And that's something I hope we see less of going forward as our industry accepts that a more flexible working pattern can still be useful and productive and valuable.
2: Yeah, I agree. So how do you bring up conversations with people you work with or the people you know, your your bosses or the management team, what do you say? How do you tell them what your individual needs are? And what are their reactions?
3: So I'm really, so the place I'm working at the moment, Anvil, is it's a really small team. There's eight of us. And it's a pretty flat structure as well. While I have the two, the two co-founders, Meredith and Ian, they run things, as it were, but they're not, it's not a traditional, I guess, management, you know, I'm, I don't feel beholden to them in the same way that I would to like, they're not my boss exactly, but they do pay my salary, but they're not my bosses in that sense. So if I say to them, look, I'm not going to be able to get this thing done because I just can't focus today or like, you know, multiple times I said, oh, my brain is full of bees. My brain is too full of sludge today. I'm going to take a nap. I did that today. The trust is there for them to say, okay, go do that. And you'll get your work done when you get your work done. And so when I bring things up, like we have, you know, our regular check-ins or whatever, I might say, oh, I've been in a rut lately and I think I really need to change what I'm working on or how I'm working on it. This thing isn't working, that thing isn't working. and Whether or not it's because of one of the weird ways that my brain or my body is, they just handle it as if it were a need. There's no fuss just because it's arising from a way that I'm outside the norm which I think is the ideal way to handle it. Because obviously every person is unique and what we define as norms are only sort of vague clusterings of behaviours and traits that we see in people, right? It's just sort of a the most common way for a person to be, but everybody's going to differ from it in some way, right? I have had experiences in the past when the trust hasn't been there and I've said something's not working or I'm struggling and a manager has just not, I guess, believed that I was being genuine, thought I was skiving. And that has been some of the worst experiences. I think that's where some of the dark side of like in inaccessibility, and it's not just in tech; it's in that could be in any workplace. Is when there isn't trust between you and the person that you're sort of the person you're working for, the person who's representing your employer to you. And when I say it's sort of my views on accessibility have really shaped the way that I view the industry and what jobs I've taken. That's one of the key things that has to be there is. My managers have to trust that I'm being honest about my abilities and my needs. And that's true for anyone, but I think it becomes particularly weighty when you're talking about things that arise from marginalizations.
0: And do you find that that's trust that you have to build up in relationship with those managers, or it sort of has to be there from the beginning? Because from the beginning, you're going to need some sort of way to work with them and, and build some flexibility into your working relationship.
3: So the relationships I'm thinking of, where that trust has been present and they've been really fruitful and positive relationships, it has been there just from the start, or given on faith, as it were. Yeah, as I say, I became disabled uh, fairly early on, uh, three months out of university. Fantastic, right? And I had just moved to be, I had just had a new manager. There'd just been a shake up in the management chain, and the the manager who I was then placed with had never known me not being ill. And I was dealing with suddenly being ill, not knowing what was happening to me and so on. And I think it would have been a very different experience had he trusted me that I was being honest and not just trying to skive and get away with being in a cushy software job without doing any work, which is very much how that situation did play out. I think if the trust isn't there from the start, it's going to be very hard to earn. And I think that part of hiring somebody and expecting them to work with you, if you don't Trust them to be able to do that and manage their needs and expectations and abilities. You have no business hiring them, in my opinion.
0: Struck me like as you were saying that that if, if the person is coming to that situation as, oh, you know, you've got to always keep an eye on people because they're always trying to get one over on <sighs> you and find ways to you know not work very hard or whatever. Like like that person is never going to have a fantastic relationship with it the, with their reports. And and then once you add in the other marginalizations on top of that, it just goes downhill even faster.
3: And that's something that I think we've seen over the last year with reluctance or resistance to moving to work from home, where if somebody who is managing has been very used to being able to walk around and see what's on everyone's screens and have this sense that they are keeping an eye on and making sure nobody is secretly playing Minecraft for eight hours a day or whatever, what moving to work from home requires that trust. And it sort of reminds me of there's some advice I've heard about, like having a long distance uh, like romantic relationship where you've got to be really, really good at trust and communication. And those are two things that you should have in any, like any serious relationship, whether romantic or not, right? And I think that maybe working from home over the last year has exposed in some relationships, like think about work relationships, where those things haven't been present. But it's not that working from home created them, it's that it exposed them. And the companies I think that are doing the best now at maintaining and building those relationships between coworkers and in their in their management structure are ones that probably already had that and probably had set themselves up for success by just having a healthy sort of environment to begin with. So
2: I have a tendency when I start with a new client. I'm an independent contractor, I work for several companies my tendency is to always under promise and overdeliver, deliver. And then I do that and I'm really good at doing that. But then things inevitably come up I get sick. And then I feel like I'm letting them down because it's like, well, they expect the bar to be here and now it's down here. And then I am disappointing them. And they're like, well, where's the Mandy that we hired? And It's like, well, you did hire that Mandy, but that Mandy is not here today. Like, do you have those feelings, first of all? And if you do, like, how do you deal with them?
3: Yeah, the guilt. Whenever I have to take a day off sick, my goodness. And it has definitely been compounded by the experiences that I've had of not being trusted. So if I say that I need to take a day off sick and people go, oh, well, couldn't you come in anyway? And I've been really fortunate in the last couple of jobs that I've had, where I've had really, really supportive relationships with managers that were full of trust. Um, so I'm slowly starting to creep back from that a little bit. One of the ways that I think I got to that point, though, or one of the way, one of the things that really helped me was upfront managing expectations. And so I take days off now when I get sick, as opposed to having overdone it with fatigue and and, and got to a point in my fatigue where I where I need to take days off just to rest by cutting back to four days a week. And so that's one of the things where I say, actually, I'm gonna factor in that Eli isn't here today. That Eli won't be here one day a week. So don't hire me on that day. And that was a choice I made because I wanted to stay in work, essentially. That was that was the only way I could consistently, in good faith, promise to be able to deliver a consistent amount of at the time being in the office. So that's the big thing that I've done. I think there's a lot of shame that comes with, you know, having a chronic illness, not being at your best, one hundred percent, as well. I think that's in in the tech industry, in particular, where there's um this mentality of like you've got to hustle, the star developer, you know, and admitting that you can't be that. I mean, I even said the word like admitting, as if it was a failure, but stating that that's not possible for you can be seen as and can certainly feel like it being a failure and that's not fun but at the same time for me it's certainly true i'm never going to be a rockstar developer putting in 70 hour weeks and cranking out like loads of code that's just not me so tackling that head on and just admitting it and saying like if this is a problem then i we're not going to it's not going to work out and i have had a lot of places that have been, have been pinged by recruiters and then i say i can do a four-day week this is these are the terms that i can work on and they they don't want it and that's their call to make i hope that that will change i hope that will change um soon as a result of the recognition that flexible working is good actually for for parents for people with disabilities for all kinds of people but that's one of the big ways that i've managed those feelings and cut down on the situations where those feelings arise but it's definitely something i massively relate to i still do struggle to take time off and uh i'm really lucky at the moment to have you know i had my checkup with with Ian this week and one of the first things he said is like when are, when are you going to take some time off soon because I've been working a lot recently and that was really lovely so having supportive co-workers who I mean and they lead by example as well they take time off just whenever and it's great and it doesn't make us less productive or you know I think it makes us healthier as a team and it certainly helps me navigate all the issues that I have surrounding it
0: which are myriad uh you touched on an interesting point right there at the end there about how not only is it useful for you to have obviously a management buy-in with with you know working on the flexibility that you need, but having the team culture of everybody around you also them taking the time that they need and working on the flexes that they need to flex um, is an incredibly important part of supporting you in in feeling like it's it's okay for you to do those things.
3: yeah, it sort of reminds me of I guess the push to. Put pronouns in your your bio or your 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 name your, your screen name, um, regardless of whether or not you are somebody who often gets that people get your pronouns wrong. Because there's, yeah, there's this phenomenon where strictly speaking something is allowed, but if it's outside the norm, you still feel odd. You might feel ashamed of doing it. So even if you are allowed to take mental health days at your place of work, if nobody else does, you're still sort of not allowed socially. You're not allowed almost. And so yeah, setting healthy norms opens doors for everybody including those who need the doors opened for them as it were like me <laughs> I don't always have the energy to advocate for myself because of the reasons that I need to advocate for myself so yeah I mean leading leading by example on the part of the people that I work with and the people who have the clout like sort of organizationally even though we have quite a flat structure at Anvil and that's one of the things my my, my manager at my last place as well was really really fantastic about was yeah setting good examples yeah definitely reducing the stigma around taking care of yourself removing the onus from the person who will have the hardest time advocating for themselves
1: so i think there's a pretty general statement here which is that managers that don't trust their employees are bad managers
3: I think it's very hard to be a good manager if you don't trust your employees. I mean, I'm thinking of—it's not in tech. I, I did work a retail job, and I think across that industry, there's just it's not that's just not a thing. You're not trusted by your manager if you work in retail, just as yeah. a default. Um, and the places that where that where you, where you are a unicorn land rare. Yeah, I think I would agree with that general statement. I hesitate to make sweeping statements just in general because you know humans are so vast and complex and complicated that. They'll almost always be a counterexample to whatever sweeping statement. But I mean, I think trust has to be the basis of any healthy relationship, right? If you're working together towards some shared goal, as a relationship is, whether or not that's to have fun hanging out or to get some work done, you have to trust that you're both committed to that. I suppose. And lacking that trust, well, why have you hired that person? Why are they working for you? I suppose.
1: In human factors and safety science, there's an there's an old view of human performance which is that people are a problem to be managed people make mistakes they have to be trained they have to be watched they have to be supervised they can't be trusted to make decisions people are a problem to be managed the way you get a safer workplace is by dealing with problem employees and making sure they don't screw up right and the new view of human performance and safety is that people are the source of your success
3: thinking about humans as, as problems and sort of eventually by eliminating any aspect of humanity that causes problems, you're just going to end up with nothing. It reminds me of that bot that was trained to um, debug code bases and it just deleted the code base. It so like, there's no bugs cause there's yep. no code yep. and you know, there'll be no problems if there's no humans, but there'll be no success either.
1: So I, I think that managers who look at people like they're a problem to be managed are the source of a lot of these issues.
3: Yeah, that definitely resonates with me in the sense that that's how I've felt in my negative experiences, especially when it comes to managing my ability to work and viewing my marginalizations as problems to be managed instead of just ways that I am. Yeah. Which is a, de- a difficult one to navigate when, uh, with chronic fatigue, I didn't always have this disability and it has limited my life, but it's also, I think, made me think very deeply about things that I wouldn't have otherwise. And so there's sort of... In my case, I think there's been a silver lining, and it's now it is a part of the way that I am, and it's you know you can take it or leave it, but it's a package deal with me working for you or me being friends with you or me being part of your d and d group, and it has to be accepted and can't be managed away and i mean that's been i think that's been the case as well with like my other marginalizations mandy ratt- rattling off the uh, the whole litany of of various things that I am, and I have definitely had instances, so for example, with my Jewishness where I sort of been expected not to bring it to work almost. And of course, in the UK we're a very sort of we don't actually have a separation of church and state, right? We we are actually a, a, a Christian country and everyone does Christmas, right? And um you've got all the loads of the bank holidays and what not Easter. And whenever I would make a remark that I did not fall into this norm and that actually I would be celebrating Passover instead of Easter and it was at a slightly different time, it was viewed as like I was causing problems for being different, almost, even though it was just an aspect of the way that I am. So I think that's an attitude that definitely pervades and is definitely harmful in more on more axes than just disability and ability to work.
2: Well, I, I think attitude that that needs to go. I've worked for people where I've totally been afraid to be my full self because I'm afraid they'll fire me. Like I pretended to be a conservative for a very long time with a a client. And boy, was that stressful. (laughs) For me, a lot of it is fear and being rejected. And then all of a sudden, I don't have a job. And then all of a sudden, I can't pay my bills. And then it just spirals from there. So it leads to a lot of almost pretending to be someone that I'm not for fear of looking good or looking a certain way or being perceived as a certain person and it becomes really really stressful.
3: I had um, a couple of jobs ago so the way that I handle being genderqueer is I just base on on vibes whether or not I'm going to come out and at what stage right so at my current place I was on my first day I was like by the way I use they pronouns I'm genderqueer and you know absolutely plain sailing it was totally fine. A couple of jobs ago I decided not to and let everyone just assume that I was a woman, which is how I sort of present essentially, or that's what most people assume were looking at me. And part of the reason for that was that, uh, the CTO was a Trump supporter who he had, he was one of those people who had jokes for everybody in the office, right? He had like sort of little funny jabs that he would make quote unquote funny jabs. And his funny jab for me was that I drank instant coffee and it was not like real coffee. And I just thought if he is going to make fun of me, every morning for not drinking real coffee. What kind of fun is he going to make of me for not having a real gender? And I thought, you know what, safer, probably just to not, not bring it up. And it is stressful and I felt dishonest and I'm not sure. Well, if I were in the same situation now, I'd be looking for another job, but, um, but I'm not, but yeah, being able to bring your whole self to work. I've definitely tried before and been rebuffed. And this is the first time that I think it's, it's, it's sticking, um, with my current place. Which is, is such a joy, honestly. I cannot overstate it. And part of it is an intentional effort on the people creating and enshrining the culture to allow that. I think there's probably some truth to the idea that with norms the way that they are and with norms that don't allow you to be your whole self and that will punish you for being certain ways, it does require an active effort on people creating culture to go against that. Which is a shame, because if you're trying to get a business up and running, that might not be your highest priority. But as soon as you let it slip even a little bit, it's just going to spiral.
0: Yeah, you're, you're right that it takes intentional effort. That these, A culture like that does not happen by accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, it just sort of falls into that. <laughs> and one of the things I'm curious about is, like, were you able to suss out that aspect of the culture before you started this job, or did you sort of get there and then realize that you'd locked into it?
3: One of one of the things that was kind of funny about while I was interviewing for this job was that I'd actually met one of the founders, Meredith, at uh, a social event in Cambridge briefly, and um, I think not caught his name, not followed up, but we like met, talked briefly, like really vibed. And then when I went to this interview for the, oh, it's a developer advocate job. That sounds great. The company looks nice. The product is cool. And I went into the interview and I was like, oh, it's you. You know, somebody that I'd met briefly really got along with. And one of the things that, that Anvil did and that Mereda and Ian did was very deliberately make sure that they were trying to be gender inclusive in the hiring from a very early stage. So even when I interviewed, there were four people and one of the core platform developers was a woman. I say was, as if she's not with the company, but she is. And very early on in me working at Anvil they, one of the things that one of them said to me was we were very conscious that if we got to a stage where it was 10 men and we were trying to hire our first woman that woman being interviewed is not going to be inclined to take the job and be the only woman in the room with 10 guys I guess they got lucky in the sense that they found the, the woman candidate Bridget who was incredible and, and that they didn't happen to end up finding that the best candidate every single time was a guy but yes yeah, certainly intentional and it's something that we're, we we centre when we're trying to find new people as well, because it's done us well so far. And um, it's something that I would, yeah, I have looked for in the past as well. It's it's when I have said thinking about which jobs I'm able to take, like trust with the managers and yeah, ability to be myself, because it's so exhausting when you can't. You have to have to create and and impersonate a whole other person. I about a context switcher? Oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, trying to remember who's out where. So there was a time when, so my fiance is genderqueer as well, and there was a time when we were each out at each other's jobs, but we weren't out at our own jobs. <laughs> and so yeah, we were each being read as, as cisgender at our own jobs. But with a gender queer partner and it was just so confusing you know i barely got enough brain to handle my day job let alone being two or three different people in different places
2: so I, so, i'm curious about that if i can ask um so i'm actually going through that right now i'm bisexual and not a lot of people know that and it's like do i need to make a grand announcement
3: I just like to pepper into conversation that I think like Lucy Liu is really hot or something. I don't know. It's a, it's a hard one. I mean, that's kind of how I came out to my parents as bi, was I was just loudly interested in, in women in front of them and never really said anything. Or at least to, to my memory. And I got very lucky with my parents as well, because my, my younger brother is transgender as well. And so he actually came out before me and paved the way. And so when it came time to um come out to them as, as genderqueer, I just gave him a phone call and said, by the way, I'm genderqueer. My friends are using they pronouns for me. You can, if you want, and just left it. No, it is a difficult thing. I mean, coming out, just, it's hard at any stage because the thing that I've always felt is that I fear I've deceived people, but actually it's not me. It's, it's the norms and assumptions that are being made completely in, in, in good faith, right, by people. That's not necessarily that people are being malicious when they assume me to be a woman or assume me to be straight, but that I have to inform them that they're wrong. And that's scary, right? I don't like conflict and there's, oh, there's a potential for conflict here because I have to tell them that they're wrong and nobody likes to be wrong. Nobody likes to, yeah, have made an incorrect assumption. It's difficult every time and I think the way that I get through it these days is just by being obnoxiously confident of people. Just saying, oh, if if you're taking it back, I'm sorry, get over it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I've just been slowly peppering it into the people I trust and it's like, I do feel that level of deceit. I'm like, well, th- these people have known me as a straight woman for, I'm not going to disclose my age, this many years. And now all of a sudden she's not? Like, is this is this a phase? Is this a, like, you know, you have those people and then like to new people who are, you know, have been queer or bi, like, am I gay enough? Am I, <laughs> you know, so it's like, there's this, this whole spectrum where it's like, I don't know where I am.
3: Somebody, please help me. I'm just gonna be quiet. Oh, the um, the, am I gay enough? I still, I still have that. Like, so I, I'm genderqueer, and I've had top surgery. I wanted to have a flat chest, and I was able to do that. And sometimes I still go. But am I trans enough to have done that? <laughs> you know, the, the the level to which you can yeah, absorb that kind of yeah rhetoric is uh, is really quite impressive, actually. Yeah, am I am I gay enough? Gay enough for what? You know. Yeah. And the thing about like, is it a phase? Like everything's a phase, mom. Show me the show me the permanent state of the self. There's no such thing. Um,
2: one of my favorite affirmations is I am allowed to change anytime. time. And I like to look at myself in the mirror. And if I decide I'm with a woman and then all of a sudden it doesn't work out and I want to go back to being with a man and I'm Australian, again, I am allowed to change any time. I don't owe anybody that and I'm working on that. It's taken a lot of therapy for me to get to that stage, but all I owe it is to myself.
3: I have a friend who had been going through sort of crisis of identity, and basically, to me, it seemed very clear that they were much, much happier in one label than the other, and and so to me, that's what ought to make the decision, right? But obviously, it's not so, it's not so clear when you're in the middle of it, right? And one thing I I, I said to them that I I hope helped was. Even if you turned around tomorrow and said, oh no, I'm actually this other thing. If you lose any friends for that and somebody says, oh, you were a fraud, you were lying to me all this time. It's like, that wasn't your friend to start with. It will be okay. Yeah, you are allowed to change. You are allowed to decide where and how and what label makes you comfortable and which behaviors in yourself you want to celebrate or accentuate.
2: Yeah, I feel that's very important to hear as I've been navigating this this past few years. I've realized I'm not alone. So I think to all the listeners out there, if you are going through sort of an identity crisis. I don't don't know if I like calling it an identity crisis, but if you're struggling with who you are, I think everybody is to one extent or another, even as a a person, not just a gay person, not just as a trans person, or not just as a political person. I think everyone out there is just extremely like who am I and right now especially
3: yeah that's something that with with this friend I was discussing is the idea of an objective truth about yourself and whether or not that exists would I be a cis woman if this thing in my past was different or I'd had a different balance of hormones while I was in the womb or any of those sort of ways that people try to find causes um or pathologize or rationalize the ways in which humans are complex and different and unique and i think i found comfort and peace in the idea that there isn't necessarily an objective truth buried at the heart of me underneath layers of experience or whatever i am who i am at this moment that is broadly continuous one moment to the next but it might change Uh, you know at some point i will have found that i've crossed a boundary over time maybe you know i i used to identify as a woman and then i don't think anything about myself abruptly changed but one day i was like no actually i'm not you know, women are great, but I'm not one. I'm not one of them. That's not dishonest and it's not disingenuous to change over time or to find that your surroundings have changed around you and that you relate to them differently. So, for example, going back to the like, oh, what if I, what if the objective truth about myself? If I had grown up in a culture where being a woman looked different than it does now, or than it has in my life, I might have thought differently about my gender over time, but that doesn't mean that the way that I am is not real. This gives yeah. me...
1: The opportunity I've been looking for to name drop Virginia sent here. (laughs) She uh, wrote a poem that uh, I really love called I am me. And I'll just read a little bit of it. Uh, It says, however, I look and sound, whatever I say and do and whatever I think and feel at a given moment in time is authentically me. If later some parts of how I look sounded, thought and felt turned out to be unfitting, I could discard that which is unfitting, keep the rest and invent something new for that which I discarded. And later it says, I own me and therefore I can engineer me.
3: As someone with a customized body, I love that. <laughs> I love that. I love that as a like a way to approach therapy as well. Um, I'm, I'm someone for whom I was, I'm, I'm very lucky in the sort of what is recommended as the basic bitch first line therapy in, here in the UK, cognitive behavioral therapy, works well for me. And that is very much, I am sort of objectively looking at my thoughts and trying to encourage the ones that I agree with and discourage the ones I don't, sort of engineering engineer and debug
1: my brain Uh, it might not surprise you that she was a family therapist
3: i like that yeah more therapists should be should be poets in my opinion my my, i've I've had therapists that have said some incredibly profound things i like the idea of yeah as well disc that the imagery of discarding things which no longer fit you whether that's labels or behaviors or friendship groups or political alignments or whatever in the same way that you would with clothes and I know that I mean this is something where I've 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 recently read Marie Kondo's incredible book, The Life Changing Magic of Tidying, and really loved the, ideal, the, the the sort of idea of um everything you wish to spark joy and that you can look at something which no longer fits you and say, Thank you for the role you've played in my life. It's over now and and, and put it away and, and you know, donate to charity or whatever. And I think applying that same method to non-physical aspects of our lives that we've outgrown and need to be put away. I, I think it would certainly help me, and you know, probably yeah, to avoid the sense of shame or guilt or, or feeling disingenuous that comes with growing and changing as a person.
2: I feel the same could go for sobriety, which is also a thing that I am struggling. Like, drinking alcohol—it was fun while it lasted. We had some good times. We had some not such good times, but it no longer serves me. So we're not going to do that anymore.
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's another axis on which I want to circle back to accessibility in tech because here in the UK we have a really strong drinking culture, and I don't know how I think it. I, from my understanding, it sort of varies across the states, and you know, but here in the UK it is very much like we are getting drunk at house parties from our sort of mid early teens, and the first place I worked had a very strong drinking culture. All of your work relationships were to be strengthened down the pub over a pint. Every work party was drinky. Um, And I have a friend who is teetotal, not due to, uh, as as far as I know, any religion, just, just a completely personal choice. And actually, that was one of the factors in them leaving that role at that company was because they were not allowed to be their whole self at work. Because being at work meant drinking, to a certain extent, if you wanted to be successful popular get the good projects and obviously that locks so many people out you know people who are sober for whatever reason people who might not be drinking because they might be pregnant you know people yeah who just who oh, just I don't guess. like to drink and yeah yeah people for religious reasons or health reasons and it's one that i think again sing the praises of my current place when we hang out, COVID safe-wise, it's like lunchtime picnics and stuff. And we've got new parents at our company who we want to be able to include in social gatherings and make sure that it's not predicated on drinking and being out late to be able to socialize with your co-workers if you choose that that's something that you want. I think it's probably another thing where you have to take an active stance on it so as not to just absorb paradigms from the greater society that you're embedded in. Yeah, I am. I am
2: not going to... Say I'm not nervous for when conferences resume because conferences do have a very big drinking culture and that's kind of like a socialization thing. And I'm I'm very nervous about how I'm going to navigate that. I mean, it just seems like it's everywhere. But I've kind of come to the place where I'm just going to say no. And I have some fancy mocktails I like, so that's what I'll be doing. <laughs>
3: Yeah, something I really liked recently was, I mean, and I, and I do drink and I do like to drink, but there I was at Python web conference and there was a sort of, after the day was done of, of talks and things, there was this like, sort of fun social event afterwards. And it was all virtual because it was this March. And it was somebody making cocktails in their kitchen and showing us all of this fancy cocktail gear. And the virgin ones, the non-alcoholic ones were given equal parity, like time and attention were paid to them. And it was just presented as completely not, not noteworthy at all that somebody might not drink alcohol. Um and I think that was a really nice way of framing it. It was just, you know, and here here is here is the alcoholic version here is the non-alcoholic version and there's no value judgment being made about the two. And I think that was also a an active choice on the on behalf of the person doing that presentation and the people organizing the conference. But yeah, so many different ways that not paying attention to these things can can lock people out of the industry and contribute to that that good old leaky pipeline that we all know and love. When
0: we come to the end of every show, we like to do what we call reflections, which is to talk about the things that struck us about the conversations or the ideas that we're going to be thinking about later. Uh, and for me, the the something you said, uh, Eli, just recently was that your marginalizations are not problems to be managed. Rather, they're just the way you are. They're just who you are. It's such a powerful statement about identity and how it should be thought about and treated that I really like the phrasing of it as something that can be just repeated to drill it into everybody's head.
2: For me, I really liked the Virginia Satir poem that Ray shared, especially the last bit of I Only me and therefore I can engineer me. I think that is so relevant And such a good thing for everyone to keep in mind. I really believe that people shouldn't be afraid of change. I mean, no. Let me say that again. Because I think you can be afraid of change. But it's going to be okay. And you are allowed to be afraid of change. And it can be overwhelming. And it can be scary. But you're going to get through it. And I'm going to get through it. So thank you for allowing me to... Tell a little bit of my truth for the first time in the tech world and on this podcast.
1: It's really great to have you on the show, finally. Your show. Yeah, you know, in Lincoln, the uh, welcome to your house scene, this is like the welcome to your podcast
2: scene. It's not my, it's all of our podcasts. I couldn't do it without
1: all of you. The Bugs Bunny meme, our podcast. So I thought I might. Close us out by reading another part of that poem. She says, I own everything about me, my body, including everything it does, my mind, including all its thoughts and ideas, my eyes, including the images of all they behold, my feelings, whatever they may be, anger, joy, frustration, love, disappointment, excitement, my mouth and all of the words that come out of it, rude or polite, sweet or rough, correct or incorrect, my voice, loud or soft. And all of my actions, whether they be to others or to myself.
3: I love that. Thank you. Eli, how about you? I guess I'm just thinking about all the different ways that people can be and how complicated and complex and beautiful and different and diverse it is to be a person, the same person over time, even. If space isn't made for that, including or not including things that we understand to be martializations in our sort of current model, it harms people. And the places that put effort into making space for people to be people in all the messy,
1: complex, weird ways that they are, are going to do better. That's well deserved. It it turns out that that's you know good business, but it's also the right thing to do. Yeah, fully agreed. Yeah.
2: Well, again, thank you so much for coming on the show, Eli. It has been absolutely wonderful having you, and I'm so glad it's been you here to be on my first episode as a panelist of greater than code and for listeners out there i hope you like what you've heard and maybe you'll see a little bit more of me in the future but if you would also like to talk to the rest of the panel we do have a patreon patreon.com slash greater than code and join us for as little as a dollar and if you cannot afford it or you don't want to afford it, just get in contact with me and I will get you in anyway. So it works out for everyone. Thank you so much for listening and hopefully I will talk to you very soon.